be in Galatians chapter 5, in verse 13 this evening. And this will be the final positive one another passage we look at. And by positive, we've seen positive commands of how we're to treat one another. Uh, and there's several of them. There's, there's one other one that we won't, we won't cover, because I, I believe we already have, and that's in 1 Corinthians 11.33, where it tells us that we are to wait for one another, and that comes in the context of, of the Lord's Supper. And so I would, if I was to put that in a category, say you be courteous to one another, uh, but we're going to look this evening at the command that we are to serve one another, and then over the next several weeks, seven approximately, we will be looking at negative commands uh, in regards to one another and our treatment of one another. So we've been told positively, this is how you're supposed to live life with one another, then we're going to look at don't do this with one another next. And so this specific command, Galatians 5 verse 13 says this, For you are called to freedom, brothers. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh, but through love serve one another. Now just as a general statement, this is a present active imperative, which is telling us this, the imperative means that it's a command. That it's present and that it's active means that it's to be ongoing as part of our life, as a Christian life with the brethren. So there never comes a point where you say, this doesn't apply to me. But it's an active part of the Christian life. It is who we are as a people, that we are a people that serve one another. Now what does it mean to serve? Well, specifically... As you look at this verb here, it's really to be a slave. In fact, when you find the noun version of this, it's translated slave. In fact, if you read the, the legacy Bible that was the NSAB, but where they just recently changed some of the translations of servant to slave, because that was the proper rendition of that noun, here we see that same word, but in a verbal form. We were to be a slave to one another, and we think, well, does it really mean that? One dictionary says, on this specific word, it's to serve normally in a humble manner and in response to the demands or commands of others. Now, what does it mean that we are to serve? We don't like that idea that I have to serve someone. There's almost a, a natural repudiation of that. I think that some people are naturally bent towards service, but just in general, we're selfish people. We act selfishly. And we serve a lot of times when it's convenient to serve. But the call to serve here is one that's not a call to serve when it's convenient, but it's a call to live a life of service for others. Now, just as a general way of looking at how this word is used, it, it's helpful. We have this idea, general idea of service found in the Lord Jesus' words in the Sermon on the Mount. No one can serve two masters, for either he will hate the one and love the other, or he will be devoted to the one and despise the other. You cannot serve God and money, or you cannot serve God and mammon. So, 
we see throughout Scripture a clear from all the way from the beginning that we are to serve God and God alone. And to have some sort of confliction with that where we desire to serve other things, self-interest, idols, or whatever it may be, it comes into conflict to the service that God requires and demands and that He is worthy of. And so this is why we can't serve God and serve our own self-interest. But our service to God is not just us gathering to worship God in a formal worship setting. It actually is manifested in this setting. And that's what we have to see in Scripture. Now, serving God involves ministering to others. And if we look at the example of the Apostle Paul... It puts it in perspective in Acts chapter 20, verse 19, where he says, Serving the Lord with all humility and with tears and with trials that happened to me through the plots of the Jews. Paul is talking about the persecution and the turmoil that he faced in taking the gospel to other places to see churches planted. So his service to the Lord was actually the Great Commission and the fulfillment of the Great Commission, which was considering others before himself. Because he knew that when he went out on those missionary journeys, he was going to face troubles. Christ told him, you will suffer for my name's sake. And so his service to others, he knew in his mind before he even took one step in a missionary journey, Suffering is coming with obedience to serving others. We also see what Paul writes in Romans chapter 12, verse 11. He says, Do not be slothful in zeal. Be fervent in spirit. Serve the Lord. It's something that's an all-out effort. It has to be an all-out effort in something that we do as part of our lives. And again, as we've seen, it it involves serving other people, our service to the Lord. You think of what he says about his son in the ministry, Timothy, in Philippians chapter 2, verse 22. But you know, Timothy's proven worth, how as a son with a father, he has served with me in the gospel. Again, that is service for Christ manifesting itself with people. Paul even says this needs to take place within the relationships of our work. He says in 1 Timothy chapter 6, verse 2, Those who have believing masters must not be disrespectful on the ground that they are brothers. Rather, they must serve all the better, since those who benefit by their good service are believers and beloved. So we see a clear call that we are to serve the Lord, that we are to, in serving the Lord, serve one another. So just as we can start with this command in Galatians 5.13, where it is a command, you are to live this way, we have to start with this first. Our service to the Lord is our service to one another. That's how it's going to manifest itself. Now look at how Paul writes this. And I think this is why it's important to see that that word serve is sometimes in in the noun form is translated slave, because I want you to hear the contrast in this. For you are called to freedom. 
then you, you see right after that there's this command, be a slave to one another. You see two counter ideas that are at odds with one another. You're free. You're to be a slave to one another. You are to serve one another. And throughout the Gospel of Galatians, what we see over and over again is this idea that you are free. In chapter 2, verse 4, he writes this, Yet because a false brother secretly brought in who slipped in to spy out our freedom that we have in Christ Jesus, so that he might bring us into slavery. In chapter 3, verse 23, Now before faith came, we, held, we were held captive under the law, imprisoned until the coming faith would be revealed. In other words, before Christ, we were enslaved. But in Christ, we have received what? Received freedom. Chapter 4. In verse 24, he gives this allegorical picture of this freedom and this slavery in regards to the law. He says in verse 24, Now this may be interpreted allegorically. These women are two covenants. One is from Mount Sinai bearing children for slavery. She is Hagar. Now Hagar is Mount Sinai in Arabia. She corresponds to the present Jerusalem, for she is in slavery with her children. But the Jerusalem above is free, and she is our mother. Again, this image of being set free in Christ, chapter 5, in verse 1. For freedom, Christ has set us free. Stand firm, therefore, and do not submit again to a yoke of slavery. Verse 13, for we were called to freedom, brothers. So you see this freedom is a freedom from the bounds of the law. Freedom in knowing that we are not accepted by God by the law or according to the law or according to our works or anything else that we could contribute. But we're accepted by God because of Christ. Because we are seen in Christ. It is His righteousness alone by which we are saved. That is the freedom which we have received in Christ. That we don't just show up to God and say, here's my pile of works, is it enough for you to accept me? We don't have to worry about that. We're not enslaved to that. We've been set free from that by Christ. And so it's a clear conscience that we've been given freedom. A clear conscience that the law could not provide. And you just think about that. If you set out to live your best according to the law, how many of you would have a clear conscience? You wouldn't. It would testify against you, which is, by the way, one of the purposes of the law. Well, the Judaizers... They had been infiltrating the church of Galatia and they were teaching Christ. You can get salvation in Christ. You just have to add to it. It's Christ plus. It's not Christ alone. And you see this. He says this in verse 3 of chapter 5. I testify again to every man who accepts circumcision that he is obligated to keep the whole law. 
old covenant system that the Judaizers were trying to impose upon the church was to set a people apart for God's name, the Israelites. That's, that's what they were set apart. And with that setting apart, it included land and it included blessings. And it marked them. And the law went like this. If you keep this law, you'll get these things. Your your wombs will always be fruitful. You will have food. Your enemies will perish before you. And that was the promise of obedience to the law. But if you're disobedient to the law, it comes with curse. All the things that you were given in blessing will be removed and you'll experience the opposite of it. But that law, and we would, I would, I would agree with the reformers in that there's a three, there's three views of, or there's th- threefold aspect of the law, which is this: is that there was a ceremonial law, uh, there was a judicial aspect of the law, and there was the moral law, which we would say is the moral law is summarized in the Ten Commandments, and they were to be obedient to all of those things. What happened? with their ability to keep the law. How, how often did they keep it? How did that work out for them? They didn't. They couldn't keep the law. It never saved them. And when God would send forth someone that was to represent his people, you think of David, how did it work out for David? Adam, who was was brought into this world and created in the most pristine environment with no, no sin. He had the capacity to sin, but he was not sinful. He was righteous. How did he keep the law? Our first federal head felt. That's why we need a second one in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we could not keep the law. And so we see that the law was for this purpose of pointing us to Christ. And when we come into Christ, guess what happens? And here's where we have to be super clear about this connection of the law and the gospel. Because we're reading in verse 13 a command. Is that in Christ emerges a new community that can do something that the old covenant could not provide is that in Christ this new community emerges that has been set free from those things, but set free to the law, that they can keep it now. And so this freedom, it led many to think that, well, Paul, you're saying there should be no law. That's called antinomianism. Paul's not an antinomian. The other view of antinomianism on the other side would be the Judaizers, and that is what? That would be legalism. That would be that that the law itself would contribute to something to us, or we would even look to the law for assurance of our salvation. Again, how will that look for you in your life if you were to look to the law and your obedience and your ability to keep it as your means of assurance? No, the confession talks about inward graces of God that speak to our heart, our love for the law and those things. But our means of salvation primary is Christ, and we look to Christ and, and Christ alone. And the problem with antinomianism and the problem with legalism is they both 
kill you. Uh, they both are, are running parallel to one another and that they will kill you. If you're, if you're a legalist, there's death involved with legalism. If you're antinomian, you are enslaved to your passions, enslaved to the flesh. But a new covenant community emerges for those in Christ, and our response to the law is different. Let me show you the promises of the new covenant. Look at Jeremiah chapter 31. In verse 34, we see this is what the new covenant in Christ does. Verse 33, excuse me, 31, 33. For this is the covenant that I will make with the house of Israel after those days, declares the Lord. I will put my law within them, and I will write it on their hearts, and I will be their God, and they shall be my people. There's this explicit promise, and that idea of writing it on the heart, we can't see that just merely as what we see in Romans 2, 14 and 15, where every individual has God's law written on their heart. That's God's means of restraining society, actually. But in the new covenant, for those in Christ, there's an application of it in our hearts where now we actually can say with David, I love your law. I thirst after your law. That is explicitly a promise of the new covenant. You look again at the new covenant as said in Ezekiel. Chapter 36 and verse 26. And I will give you a new heart and a new spirit I will put within you and I will remove the heart of stone from your flesh and give you a heart of flesh. And I will put my spirit within you. Listen, here it is. Here's the promise of the new covenant. And cause you. God by His Spirit works in us to where the desires of our heart have changed because we no longer have the same heart. We have a new heart. And it's this, is that I will cause you to walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. And I, I, I think that when we're looking at the new covenant, and we again look at the law, it's, it's important to make distinction. And that is this, there's only one law that God has written himself. What was that law? Or he writes it with his own finger. What's that law? The moral law, which is the what? The Ten Commandments. And so I think that the explicit promise of the New Covenant is that the moral law, that Ten Commandments, will be written upon our heart. And Paul, we can't say he's antinomian and anti-law, because look what he says right after freedom. For you were called to freedom, brothers... You're free from the law, but look what he says. Only do not use your freedom as an opportunity for the flesh. You're set free, but that doesn't mean you have license to sin. And Paul had to make this so clear because many accused him of being libertarian in his view of the law. Specifically, look at what the flesh is. Paul tells us, in verse 19, now the works of the flesh are evident, sexual immorality, impurity, sensuality, idolatry, sorcery, enmity, strife, jealousy, fits of anger, rivalries, dissensions, divisions, envy, drunkenness, orgies, and the like things like these. I warn you, as I warned you before, that those who do such things will not inherit the kingdom of God. 
Uh, he says we can't, because we're free in Christ, use that as an excuse to actually go and do what? Break the law. We're not free to do that. In Christ we are set free from the law, but we're set free with a desire to obey the law. You see, the character of God never changes. And you can look at the moral law and before the law was given to Moses and find it in Genesis. Examples of God expecting the people to keep the moral law before it was even given. His character never changed. And so we're not saved, be clear about this, we're not saved by our abstinence from uh, envy or immorality. We're not saved by those things. We're saved by Christ, but in salvation, God does a work that changes us, and that's the explicit promise of the new covenant, that the Spirit removes the heart of stone, changes it with the heart of flesh, and that the Spirit does this work in us. Isn't this what Paul says in Philippians chapter 2? Is that it is the Spirit working in you? It is the Spirit that is doing this work? And so we are given this desire for it. So at, at its basis, we have to understand this about the gospel And what it means for us to have believed the gospel is that the gospel by nature is transformative. You know, that should be the goal of preaching. That should be the goal of teaching. That should be the goal of our our worship is that it is transformative because we come in contact with God's revelation of himself. So the gospel in us produces fruit. What is that fruit? Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. Against such things there is no law, and those who belong to Christ have crucified the flesh with its passions and its desires. It's, It's crucial here we see this, is that transformative aspect. And if you're wondering, why are we talking about all this when the command is to serve? We just want to learn how to serve. Well, we have to understand the change of disposition that takes place before we can understand that command. It says that the flesh is crucified. Now, Paul talks about the crucifixion of the flesh. What does crucifixion mean? It means something's dead. That's what crucifixion did. And when people say, you know, I bear my cross, and it's because, you know, they had a splinter, they're misapplying that text, which was talking about an instrument of death. Crucifixion is death. He says in Romans chapter 6, verse 6, we know that our old self was crucified with him in order that the body of sin might be brought to nothing so that we would no longer be enslaved to sin. Our old self is, is dead, is what he says in Galatians. In chapter 2, verse 20, we read this, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. And the life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God who loved me and gave himself for me. My old self died. 
In Galatians chapter 6, verse 14, Paul even goes as far to say that he has been crucified to the world. He says, the world has been crucified to me, and I to the world. And so there's this death that takes place. Crucifixion always refers to death. So then we have to wonder this, why do I still sin, and why is it that I struggle if the old self is dead? Why do I struggle to serve one another with a happy heart? And why isn't it the desire of my heart to serve others? Out of a pure interest, not motivated by a pat on the back, but truly desire to serve others for the good of others, love of others, and love for God. Paul tells us on one hand that the old self, the old nature is dead. But then he warns us of the flesh, and he says this is the reality of the Christian life. In verse 17, For the desires of the flesh are against the spirit, and the desires of the spirit are against the flesh. For these are opposed to each other to keep you from doing the things you want to do. Where does Paul also write that, by the way, but in expanded form and applies it to his life? Where does he write that? Romans 7, where he talks about his own struggle. And he writes the same thing here, that this is the reality. Peter writes the same thing, that there's a civil war going on of the flesh and the spirit constantly taking place. And here's the reality. We have received eternal life in Christ. We have received new hearts. You still walk around in the flesh, though. You still walk around with the same memories of things. You still have the same sensations that you had before. But you have been given a new life. You have been given a new heart. You have been given new desires. You have been given the mind of Christ. So there are new things that come with that. But you still got this flesh with you. And you'll have it until you receive your glorified body. And then you will be perfected of it. Until then, you're going to struggle with serving one another. Until then, you're going, to, you're going to struggle with loving God. You're going to struggle with those things because we still do sin. So what does the new life look like that we're giving? The obvious thing is serving God, but that service to God, as I've already said, is manifested in our service to one another. Paul writes, but through love, serve one another. So, we are commanded, and we saw this at the beginning of the one and other passages. The biggest command that we see repeated in terms of one another is this, you're to love one another. So, what does that look like? It's service. And go to the upper room for a second. Look at Luke chapter 22. This is where, uh, in verse 24, the disciples are arguing which one of them is the greatest. If that seems strange to us, rest assured you'd be arguing about it too if you had been with them. So in verse 25, 
He said to them, The kings of the Gentiles exercise lordship over them, and those in authority over them are called benefactors, but not so with you. This isn't to be what characterizes you. This is not to be definitional of you. He says, Rather, let the greatest among you become as the youngest, and the leader as one who serves. For who is the greater? One who reclines at table or one who serves? Is it not the one who reclines at table? But I am among you as the one who serves. What did Jesus do in John 13? It's amazing how that passage starts in John 13 verse 1 because it begins by John giving us a comment before it goes into the actual narrative of Jesus washing their disciples' feet, it starts with a comment that Jesus loved his own. He loved them to the end. And how did he demonstrate that love? Well, it's through service. And, and just, just really for, for practical sake here for a second, here's how easy it is. Why did he do that? You could say for an example, and that's true because he said this is for an example. You could say that it was to also give us a vivid picture of his emptying of himself that he would go through as he disrobed and betook on the form of a slave. You see that in uh, Philippians chapter 2, 5 through 11. I think Christ acted that out in parable. But why did he wash their feet? Think about it. They had dirty feet. They needed to be washed. They were going to sit down and eat. And the way you sit down in those lounge type of chairs is you were right up next to someone very close and your feet walking around in sandals and dusty roads get dirty. And you got your dirty feet sitting out there while you're eating. And no one's washing their feet. And Jesus is observing this. Jesus, who created the very dust that is sticking to their dirty feet. Jesus, who's going to give his life for them as the only sufficient sacrifice. This Jesus sees this and says, I need to wash your feet because your feet are dirty. There was a need, and Jesus fulfills that need for That doesn't take away from the doctrinal and theological aspects of what he did, does it? Not at all. In fact, it was the practical aspect of it that served for the great deep theological point that he made. They needed their feet washed. No one was doing it. Jesus does it himself. That's a convicting thing to think about. Because again, not only would we be arguing about who was the greatest amongst us, we would also be thinking, man, Peter's feet are really dirty and no one's here to wash them. My feet are kind of dirty too and no one's washing them. And then you see Jesus arise and take on the form of a slave and grab your feet 
and wash them. That's, that's incredibly humbling. Paul makes this point about love. He says, but through love serve one another. The prerequisite of service is love. And he goes on to say this, for the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. So it's actually impossible to serve through love apart from that moral law that has been put on our heart. A moral law that doesn't save us. So as we look at what does it mean to serve, well, you look at that law that God has given us. That written word, that instruction. You think of what I think David wrote, Psalm 119. In verse 97, of this disposition that changes, Oh, how I love your law. It is my meditation all the day. Your commandment makes me wiser than my enemies, for it is ever with me. I have more understanding than all my teachers, for your testimonies are my meditation. I understand more than the aged, for I keep your precepts. I hold back my feet from every evil way in order to keep your word. I do not turn aside from your rules, for you have taught me. How sweet are your words to my taste, sweeter than honey to my mouth. Through your precepts I get understanding, therefore I hate every false way. That is the desire of a person in Christ. It's not perfect. I feel ashamed reading the psalmist at times because I recognize that I fall short in that area. But nonetheless, that is the change which takes place in us, is there is a love for God's law that guides us. And that is, by the way, the third use of the law is guidance for the Christian life. Read Calvin book two on that. But the absence of God's command to serve results in something. In other words, if we don't practice this commandment, there's an end result. Remember I said the negative one another's? We get to one of them right here. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. What's the picture Paul's using? It's wild beasts that are furiously fighting one another. So if we remove love, and the manifestation of love, what results? We look like wild beasts, animalistically devouring one another. That's what results. Has that ever happened in the church? Are we susceptible to that? Yeah, absolutely we are. So, a change of disposition comes in Christ with new desires to love the law. And the law is spelled out for us to guide and direct the Christian life on what it means to serve one another. Let's see if we can apply this In our freedom, we are set free for the purpose of serving God. And we can because of Christ. We we can gather and worship only because of Christ. 
He is our mediator. He's our high priest. We do not approach God and worship through the law, but rather through Christ. And that gathering to worship is actually our act of service to God. But what does that service look like? Again, it's manifested in our service for one another. And that doesn't have to be a deep theological point. It's that we look for ways to serve others. Christ saw dirty feet and washed them. If we see dirty feet, we should wash them. Like about 20 years ago, I was working with a mechanic on an airplane. And uh, I was just there as the guy to hand him stuff. I wasn't working on the airplane. And as I was watching him, I got to observe, he's going to need the wrench next. So I would go and grab the wrench for him, and I would have it ready. So then when he'd say, hey, give me a wrench, it's right there for him. And I, and I got good at that, knowing and anticipating what he would need by paying attention to it. See, what we have to do is we have to actually be paying attention to one another And so like the world that that consumes our thoughts and the anxieties and all of those things that we always carry, and that's on our minds, we we actually have to keep our eye on the ball. And that, that ball is, what is it that people need? I don't know about you, but I don't ask. It's rare that I'll ask for something. And and you're probably like that as well. And if you're probably like that as well, what does that mean? If we want to help one another, we have to actually look for those opportunities. And that sometimes means letting people help. The other thing is this, is that don't begrudge it. Because it's hard to serve other people, especially with you know various personalities and all of those things that we, we deal with. It's, it's sometimes hard, but a rather... Reframe your thinking like this. My service to someone else is my service to Christ. And you think of it like that. Just think the same way you look at work. I I go to work and work is difficult and work is hard and you, you would rather not have to do it, but you do it for God's glory and it changes your whole entire perspective on why you work. Well, same thing with service. If we change our perspective on why we're doing it, and to whom we're truly serving, it changes our entire perspective on it. The other thing is this. You always have to be reminded of this. Christ died for you. If you're in Christ this evening, He died for you. He laid His life down for you. He went to the cross and took your sin and gives you His righteousness And you didn't deserve it. We already saw that we couldn't please God by the law. It's through Christ. And so as we think about what Christ has done for us, that is always the foundation of how we think of and relate to others. Grace is what we would say is unmerited gift. And in our case with Christ, I think it's demerited. 
so we then have to think about it. It doesn't matter if that person has earned something from me or not. The command is to serve, not serve if they deserve it. It's to serve. And here's the final thing, is that because it is difficult, and we know this is a work of the Spirit in our hearts and in our lives, means we need to pray for God's grace, that He would give us a desire to serve, that He would give us a, the eyes to see, the desires to, to help in those areas that are, that are practical or those areas that are maybe helping theologically or whatever it may be, whatever that service looks like. We are dependent people upon God's grace. That's why we prayed this evening thanking the Lord that we had a desire to serve. Because our desires are oftentimes selfish. So let's pray to the Lord that He would give us grace, that our desires would be to serve one another as we're commanded to do. Heavenly Father, we thank You for your great mercy and grace that you have given us in the Lord Jesus Christ and the work of your Spirit in our lives in transforming us and conforming us to your image. And Father, we thank you for the guidance of your word. It's so clear. You've called us to serve one another. You've commanded that of us. But we admit, Father, that we're selfish oftentimes, that we struggle with the flesh And so we pray your help, we pray your grace, and we pray that our desires would uh, ever be increasing to love and serve one another. As we depart from here, we pray that you would prepare our hearts even now for when we would gather on the Lord's Day to worship you. We pray these things in Jesus' name. Amen.